Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and here in the garage, we crank the music up to 11. And here's the music maker himself, ladies and gentlemen, the captain. I got the beats. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking a wonderful beer called Swingin'. This is from the good folks over at the Saskahana Brewing Company. Swinging is an imperial pineapple upside down cake shandy. It's an imperial shandy which makes it unique as imperial usually means a much higher ABV. But shandy means equal parts fruity drink and equal parts beer with a lower ABV. Here we get one delicious adult beverage. ABV 8.5% garage grade 4 out of five bottle caps and let's give some thanks and praise to our good friends for helping us out with this week's beer run first up a cheers to shara in ogden utah and a big we like your jib goes out to barbara in london england cheers mates next up a cheers to mckinley in denver colorado and last but certainly not least we have a double cheers double-fisted cheers to Ange and Chelsea who joined us at BrewDog to celebrate the captain's birthday. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to truecrimegarage.com, clicked on the pint glass and helped us out with this week's beer run. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. Do you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs? Do you want to listen to the first 50 episodes that we put out? You can just go to the Apple Podcast app And on the main feed, it'll ask you to subscribe and you can get the first 50 episodes plus our two bonus episodes plus off the record and you get all of those ad free. So check those out if you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs. And Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Many called it the mystery in the mountains, and oh, what a mystery it was, and still is. A beautiful mother of two was home alone in Saxton's River, Vermont. She lives in a big, sprawling home, with most of the property in full view, from the road and Route 121 nearby. She's well-liked and well-known around town and the surrounding areas. She's busying herself while waiting for her kids to come home from school. Her son and daughter are due to arrive around 4 p.m. Surely, they would come bouncing off the school bus and ready to forget the day's lessons and move on to time spent with their toys, hobbies, or maybe to play in the yard with the family dog. It was, after all, a beautiful day outside. It was April 15, 1986, a Tuesday, and Linda Moore was home. She would have most of the day to herself, and it was a much-deserved day alone. 
She was going to get in a little me time. Linda worked part-time at a clothing store nearby Bellow Falls, and she did the bookkeeping for her husband Stephen's home remodeling business. Stephen wasn't just staying busy. His outfit consisted of several team members, and it was quite successful. There was plenty of work, plenty of jobs, and plenty of books to keep. But that beautiful day would turn ugly and red with blood. Thankfully, Stephen was the first one home that Tuesday. Unfortunately, word had to be sent out to stop the school bus that the two more children were on. Their father and the police wanted to intercept the bus and remove the children and prevent them from coming home and finding what their father had found just minutes earlier. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the still unsolved case of Linda Moore. Some of the shows that our wonderful listeners love so much, shows like Dateline and 48 Hours, shows that feature a lot of solved true crime stories, but also some still unsolved mysteries and murder cases, would have most certainly featured the case that we are taking a look at here today, had this occurred more recently. Dateline premiered in 1992, and 48 Hours has been doing gangbusters work since 1988. Our story dates back to before both of those nighttime news magazine shows. Linda Moore was killed in her home in the middle of the day on what should have just been another Tuesday in 1986. She lived with her husband and two kids in Saxton's River, Vermont. Saxton's River is an incorporated village in the town of Rockingham, and in Wyndham County, Vermont. The population back in 1986 was about 550 people. But keep in mind, it's a village within a town. The town of Rockingham back in 86 was home to about 5,500 residents, and Wyndham County had a population of about 39,000 people. We covered the Connecticut River Valley serial case the best we could in just two episodes. That was episodes 636 and 637. We released those episodes back in December of last year. So those are waiting there for you if you want to go back and turn your earballs onto those episodes. The River Valley case is rather complicated. These potential serial killer cases are complicated stories to tell. Typically, the main reason for that is multiple victims. It can be difficult for someone listening to keep up with the details of each of the victims and their cases, keeping them clear from the details of the other victims and their cases. The other issue is the passage of time. When we talk about serial killer cases, or as in this case, the potential that the person responsible is a serial killer, unfortunately, some of these guys are able to kill over a span of many years and in some cases even decades before they are discovered and apprehended. For example, we know Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 males over the course of roughly 13 years. We also know that Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, first killed four members of the Otero family in 1974, and then BTK 
was not apprehended until three decades later in 2005. Well, and here in this case with Linda Moore, it's debatable whether this case is connected to the Connecticut River Valley serial killer cases. Yeah, and it for one simple fact here, Captain, that really truly separates this case from many of the others, Linda Moore is killed inside of her home in Saxton River, Vermont, on April 15, 1986. The other victims that are connected or believed to possibly be connected to the Connecticut River Valley killer were all found outside. In many cases, had been missing for several months for a long period of time. And when the bodies are finally found and discovered, they are in relatively bad shape. Extensive decomposition has taken place. Evidence is lost due to the nature of the crime scene and where the body is found. Here with the Linda Moore case, if it is in fact connected to the Connecticut River Valley killer, This is very much different because you have a couple of things that took place here. She's killed one inside in a, in a more controlled environment where one would expect to find evidence that wouldn't be lost to the passage of time or the outdoors, the nature of an outdoor crime scene. But she's also found relatively quickly after the attack that took her life. So detectives are looking at this case through a very different angle and lens that they would the other cases. And keep in mind, a lot of the bodies that were found that are believed to be victims of the River Valley Killer were found across the state line in New Hampshire. Here we are in Vermont with the case of 36-year-old Linda Moore. I believe people could make a strong argument either way, but but you have to put this killer in that area with that opportunity. That's correct. And on the afternoon of April 15th, 1986, Linda Moore's husband found her stabbed to death in their home. Prior to being stabbed, prior to the attack, it is believed that Linda Moore was sunbathing in their yard. Several people were seen outside of the Moore's household, including what is referred to these days as a mysterious dark-haired man with cheap glasses, and a blue knapsack. Although she was not left in the woods like the other victims, Moore's body was stabbed in, again, what is reported as a very specific pattern that is found in some of the other stabbing victims in the River Valley killer case. Profiler John Philpin was brought in and worked with multiple law enforcement agencies in a lot of these cases. And he was brought in just days after Linda Moore was killed. Initially, we had a couple things going on with this case that was significantly different than the cases, the other cases. One being that they were suspicious of the husband and rightfully so. Most of the time it turns out to be the husband. A lot of times it is a domestic situation and detectives believe that is what they were looking at with the Linda Moore case. Well, and also he is the one that found her body. And oftentimes the perpetrator is the one that finds the body or conveniently finds the body. John Philbin had such a difficult time with the Linda Moore case that he struggled to be able to determine if this should be included or separate from the other cases. And in fact, he put together two profiles of the killer 
And I believe that he did this based off of the idea that he couldn't sort out if this one was connected or not. And I agree with that 100%. In fact, it was about five days after, five or six days after Linda Moore was found dead that the New Hampshire state police and the attorney general in New Hampshire had discussed putting together a task force to work on all of the unsolved cases that were piling up in the state of New Hampshire. And they invited law enforcement from Vermont to sit in. They encouraged them to join and send officers and detectives to join this task force. In the end, Vermont would say, we are going to cooperate with New Hampshire authorities. We are going to work with them, communicate with them, and assist them in any manner that we can. However, we will not be dedicating officers to their task force. Right. And I think part of that, Captain, was their belief that initially this Linda Moore case had nothing to do with the cases that were piling up, the unsolved cases that were piling up in the great state of New Hampshire. But do we know if these stabbing patterns were released to the public? No. So the thing that I question here is the reports that have came out about this, air quotes, specific pattern. Right. Keep in mind, a couple of the victims, unfortunately, were found skeletal remains is the situation. So that you're going to your only way to decipher what kind of stabbing pattern it would be, or even if it was a bladed weapon that killed the person at all would be if there is certain markings on the bones, because you have unfortunately no skin, no flesh to tell you the story of the injuries. Right. And they did find evidence that a lot of these decomposed bodies were the victims of a stabbing. Initially, what I had read, there were multiple reports that came out that said that the stabbing pattern, the specific stabbing pattern was stabs to the upper portion of the body. So up near the neck area, including the neck area, and then in almost a V pattern toward the upper abdomen. However, further digging, I found other reports that seemed to suggest a much different attack. And my question here, Captain, is without knowing the specifics, without having those case files, those actual case files and the autopsy reports, it's difficult to determine how many of these victims shared the same injuries or that same pattern of injuries. Because further digging tells us that some of the victims, it's believed that their throats were slashed, possibly from behind, and that there were a dozen or so stab wounds to the lower abdomen. Right. So if you want to picture this, and I bet you don't, but you're listening to the show, so you probably are. Hold on, let me get my sandwich. If you want to picture this in your mind, the attack, the way that it would go down, in the first case, it would very likely be a very aggressive attacker attacking the victim and stabbing in a downward motion to the neck and the upper portion of the body, up near the shoulders and around the heart and lung area. The other attack, attack style B, if you will, is very different. The The slashing of the throat, the slit throats, and there is evidence to suggest that the attacker was actually behind the victim, 
when they slashed the throat, slit the throat, and then when the victim fell to the ground or the floor, as in Linda Moore's case, then stabbed the lower abdomen repeatedly before leaving the body. Well, that could mean a couple of things. One, the simple explanation is we have two killers if there's two types of attacks. The other is it's the same killer, but the attacks are happening differently based on the position of the victim to the attacker. Correct. And so for those not familiar with the Connecticut River Valley Killer, let's fill in some of the blanks here before we get into Linda Moore's case. The Connecticut River Valley Killer is the name given to an unidentified serial killer believed to be responsible for a series of stabbing murders that took place in and around Claremont, New Hampshire and the Connecticut River Valley, primarily in the 1980s. No one can seem to agree on what victims belong to this killer. But some of the victims that some believe could be connected to the River Valley killer are victims from the 70s and even the late 60s. And as said, we are going to get into the still unsolved Linda Moore homicide case. That's why we are here. But you can't talk about Linda Moore's case without talking about the Connecticut River Valley case. Now, for the sake of moving things along, I'm just going to say River Valley Killer or River Valley Cases a lot of times in this week's story. To be clear, there is another killer out there known as the River Valley Killer, who thankfully has been apprehended. But this is in a different part of our country. Charles Ray Vines was the infamous killer known as the River Valley Killer, but that was in Arkansas. So if you get online and start poking around on this case, just know that this case is unsolved and we are not talking about Charles Vines, AKA the river Valley killer who raped and killed two elderly women in Arkansas in the 1990s. He was caught in 2000 vines was a rapist and killer. His first victim was a legally blind woman. She was 89 years old. Captain. She lived by herself. He savagely beat and raped her in her home in April of 1993. Thankfully, she survived the attack, but she was unable to identify the attacker. Two months later, he attacked another woman, this time killing her. And then in 1995, a 74-year-old woman, Ruth Henderson, was brutally assaulted and killed in a crime scene that was Incredibly disturbing, but disturbingly similar to one of the previous murders. Do you think that the previous murder? Do you think that some of these killers start off with like elderly victims because they know that they can physically overtake them easier? I don't want to get too much into the psychology of it here, Captain, but from what I've found is oftentimes when we are talking about an elderly woman who is attacked, raped, and murdered. It's very weird because oftentimes the attacker is a younger male. Right. And I think it goes into what you're saying there that as as a younger male or somebody that's not committed this type of crime before, and I hate to say this word, but it's the truth, they lack confidence. And they are looking for a weaker prey, someone right. that is easy, somebody that is vulnerable to attack. And we know that even once these killers get confidence and once they have killed before and intend to kill again they still look for vulnerable prey and weaker persons to attack but 
they start to hone in more on their preferred type of victim, the one that they fantasize about. Right. With the elderly women, who knows what Vines was fantasizing about. Maybe that's what he was fantasizing about. You also have opportunistic killers that will just attack and a kill and kill whoever is vulnerable, whoever is available to them when they go out hunting for a victim. Now, fortunately, as said, Vines was apprehended in 2000. This is because he was caught red-handed in the act. This is when the parents of a 16-year-old girl, much different victim type here, they come home, they find Charles Ray Vines in the middle of stabbing their daughter. And Vines was supposed to be a family friend. This was somebody that was known to to the family. And so he's arrested. He's sentenced to three life terms without the possibility of parole. He admits to the other murders that they had suspected him of, and this to avoid the death penalty. All of that information came from the good folks at Oxygen, which did a very intriguing story on Charles Ray Vines on their series Snapped. And you hope, given those dates that we just went through in the location of those attacks by Vines, you hope and pray that Charles Ray Vines was looked at in the Melissa Witt case, who was abducted and killed in December of 94, and Morgan Nick, who was abducted in June of 1995. So let's get back to the case at hand today, the Linda Moore case. Yes, and as said, you cannot talk about Linda Moore's case without discussing the Connecticut River Valley case. And we said in our episodes 636 and 637 that we intended to cover Linda's case in a separate episode because, again, the case is so different from the River Valley cases when you look at them as a whole. Linda was a wife and mother of two. Her and her husband, Stephen Moore, owned a somewhat well-known house on Route 121 in Saxton's River, Vermont. They lived either on or near what is referred to as Tid's Corner. So this looks like to be a big house with a barn, a decent-sized yard. But the thing here that's going to play a key role in this investigation and in this true crime story is that their home is in full view of passing cars and passerbyers that are on Route 121. Well, even though this is a small town, this is a busy road, and so this is a house that it, it would have been a desirable house. So we all know those routes that we take, those country roads where you go, oh, here, here comes this really neat barn house coming up. It was one of those. This was a like a landmark house of this road. And people, when they drove by, were in the habit of kind of looking over and checking out the house. The Moors were very fond of their home. They were very house proud. And given Stephen's job as a home remodeling, a person that owned his own home remodeling company, you can imagine the upkeep level and the maintenance level that's probably going on at the Moore house. So it's a desirable home, but also that you can see activity, right? People going in and out of the house maybe people in the backyard, the dogs outside. These are all things that drivers would regularly note when they passed by the house. And we know this based off of the people that live nearby, 
people that lived in the surrounding areas because 121 was a heavily trafficked road. A lot of people told police this, but also you had the police, the sheriff's department saying their deputies and their officers, when they were out driving, did the same thing. It was just a natural thing that you did. You look over and see what's going on on Tid's Corner and at the Moore House. Again, this will play a key factor into today's investigation. On April 15, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was home alone while her husband is at work. It's a Tuesday. At around 2 p.m., this is believed to be the last time that she is seen in the yard of her home. And we're going to have a lot of things that are a lot of moving pieces going on here. So Stephen Moore has several guys working for him. They're remodeling a home that is approximately five to six miles away from the Moore house. On this day, his guys are supposed to be working until about 3.30. As we said earlier, Linda works part-time, but she also does some of the bookkeeping for Stephen's business. Right. So on this day, Stephen has a conversation with his wife via the telephone where he says one of the guys is going to be stopping by to pick up a check. She says, okay, no problem. They have that conversation. This is before lunchtime. Stephen Moore leaves for what's reported to be about 10 minutes around lunch. And he's seen going to a local store to get a sandwich. And he returns to the work site relatively quickly. Gone roughly 10 minutes. Later that day, he goes to send his guy, one of his guys, down to the dump. They have a dump truck out at this property that they're working on. Any of the materials that they're discarding go in the dump truck and then they need to be taken to the dump, driven to the dump. So this guy's going to drive the dump truck. That will be his last job of the day. And then he's due to leave about 3.30. So this is all going on right around 3 o'clock. Well, the guy that's driving the truck to the dump, he needs to pay the dump for taking that load there. The way this works is you go in and they weigh your vehicle and then you go dump your stuff in the dump and you come back and they weigh your vehicle again and then they charge you for the the weight. So he tells his driver, stop off at my house on your way there, pick up a check from Linda, I'll call her and have the check ready and this should take you to the end of the day. He says, okay, no problem. So at the work site, Stephen Moore goes into the home that they're working on And he picks up and uses their landline to call his wife. The phone rings and rings and rings and rings. Again, this is right around 3 o'clock. He thinks, well, this is strange. The kids will be home soon. She should be home for when the bus arrives after school. But the phone's ringing, so she must not be home. Well, he can't stop and pick up a check because Linda's not there to write the check and give it to the driver of the dump truck. So he very quickly flags down his driver and says, continue on to my house. I'm leaving here in two minutes. I'll meet you there. I'll write the check. Dump truck driver leaves the work site, heads toward the Moore house. Within two minutes, Stephen Moore leaves the work site. And the way that it's explained to me, Captain, is that Stephen Moore had a bit of a lead foot. This guy liked to get where he was going and liked to get there fast. So he leaves the work site. Again, it's about five to six miles away from the Moore home. 
and he actually passes the dump truck on his way to his own home. So he arrives before his worker does, and he goes inside, and he sees his wife's vehicle in the driveway. And he says, I was a little annoyed. Here she is at home, doesn't have things going on. I need something for work. She's supposed to be keeping the books. I called. She didn't even answer. So he goes into the home, and he's a little annoyed, but he noticed how quiet the house was as soon as he walked in. The dog was outside. They have a a family dog, and the dog was outside of the home, and it was typical for the dog to lay out in the yard. Her car's there, dog's in the yard. He sees his wife's sandals outside. He also sees a portable radio outside. It's not on, but he sees it out there. Goes into the home, notices how quiet it is. He sees a package of crackers or some kind of snack item out on the countertop in the kitchen. And he goes in and he's kind of, you know, we all kind of do this. He's kind of complaining out loud, you know, thinking that his wife will hear him. He's kind of complaining that she didn't pick up the phone, didn't want to have to stop by the house and fill out a check. Well, this is when he notices that his wife is lying face down in a doorway between, I I probably shouldn't say doorway, Captain. It's probably more of an entranceway between their kitchen and their living room. She's face down. He does see a little red near her, but he doesn't immediately understand what it is. And then he goes, rushes over to his wife. He thinks she just fell, had some kind of accident. Yeah, or fainted. Yes, Rolls her over and immediately that, I mean, this is pretty gruesome stuff here. He sees the, the, the cuts on to the throat area. And he said, not only did he see red, but he saw white and this was on her arm and near the throat area. So he's seeing not just blood on his wife. He's seeing bone through the flesh. Cheers, mates, hotel, motel, holiday inn. Cheers to everybody in the back, and cheers to you, Colonel. And remember, you're smarter if you stay at the holiday inn. Yeah. we've The captain and I have experienced that on a couple of occasions. You're also taller. Mm. Uh, here's a weird thing, Captain. So in this story, one thing that I wanted to look up immediately is when did... 911, right? We have 911. You can pick up your phone and call for emergency services. You don't exactly need to know exactly the phone number for the police station or EMTs, poison control. You call 911, you tell them what's happening, and hopefully they can connect you to the appropriate channels. Well, the internet tells me that 1968 was the first time that uh, 911 was available. I'm wondering if it is available across the country that early because our case is in 1986. And one problem that Stephen Moore, amongst other problems, 
that he will have is that when he arrives, finds his wife, he runs over to the nearest phone. You know, they're on the, the ground level of their home, picks it up, and he says there was a bit of a delay, maybe 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds. He could not remember the phone number for the ambulance services in his area. Yeah, but at this point, you're freaking out. You're seeing blood. You're seeing bone. Your wife, you come in, you're angry. We've all been there. Oh, I've been working my butt off. I come back. She's not doing nothing. And then you see her. Now you're in shock. You can't remember the number for the ambulance. So he ends up calling the operator. Dial zero. Tell the operator what's going on. The operator has to give him the number for the ambulance service, to which he then hangs up and calls them. Okay. Ambulance arrives, and it's believed by all involved, including law enforcement, that the ambulance arrives on the scene within 10 to 15 minutes at the very latest of Stephen Moore arriving at his house. And the reason why we can verify this information is remember the dump truck driver left the work site before Steven, Steven speeds past him, arrives at his home first. And then the duck, tr- the dump truck driver arrives within a minute or two behind Steven Moore. Right. So Steven goes into the home and then he comes running out, yelling at his worker saying, get in here. I need your help. My wife's been stabbed. So we have his worker to tell us what time approximately that they arrived. And then we have the ambulance to tell us what time they arrived on the scene. The ambulance says that when they arrived, the woman, unfortunately, Linda Moore was beyond help. She had been dead for, the, the driver said she had been dead for at least an hour in his opinion. Now, here's another funny part of the story, and not funny ha-ha, it's funny scratch your head. But as you said, Captain, Stephen Moore likely is in panic mode at this time. The ambulance says, are the police on their way? Stephen Moore has not called the police. And so the ambulance driver says, well, I'm going to have to call the police. The ambulance driver sees blood on the handle on the receiver of the phone that's nearby Linda Moore's body. So he runs upstairs to the next nearest phone to call the police. Yeah, he does want to disturb the evidence. It's believed that the police were on scene within 10 to 15 minutes after the ambulance driver called them. Well, like you said, it's a, it's a very small town. The other strange thing here for Stephen Moore is remember he was en route to his house to write a check for the driver to go to the dump. He then goes upstairs and gets his checkbook and writes the check for his driver to continue on his way. Of course, everybody found this to be incredibly weird. Yeah, it's a little fishy, kind of fish stick fishy, maybe not so much halibut fishy. Police arrive on the scene, and now we have... The father, Stephen Moore, the husband, Stephen Moore, who's telling police, my kids, their school bus is going to pull up any minute now. They typically arrive before four. Yeah. Nobody wants them walking into this scene for a million reasons. 
Well, let's stop there for a second, because do you find it odd that he wrote the check? Because you have this dump truck, you have this employee, you have to get them out of there. I don't find it that strange. I think the police found it very odd. I'm sure maybe even the dump truck driver found it odd. I'm with you, though. There yeah, are why some would the people... dump truck driver find it odd? He, he can't leave. Until he gets paid, right? Well, he's he's not being paid. the 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 dump needs to be paid for right, right. for taking the load there. But I mean, the dump truck could go there in the morning or two days from now. Like, not you don't have to continue doing right everything that you normally would do when you find your wife stabbed to death on the kitchen floor. Right. So I, for those reasons, yes, that's why everybody would find it odd. But also, the dump truck driver basically establishes his alibi because he was with him at the work scene and then they had to drive from the work scene over to their house. So that would be his alibi. So you'd think that he would want him to stick around and talk to the police officers to establish his alibi. The reason why I can agree with you is we've seen some people and I've, I've experienced this personally where some people, they don't, they just don't know what to do and the way that they're wired tells them to just, keep on keeping on keep moving yeah. right like uh, oh like it's almost like a default reaction right i i can't process what's happened and so my default is oh i was doing this action i'll just do this action yeah it's busy work so that's what i think happened now rightfully so he and the police are worried about the kids arriving they actually sent out a couple cruisers to try to track down the bus to stop them from arriving on scene. They did stop a bus. It turned out to be the wrong one. Uh, so the kids do arrive at the house. From my understanding, by this point, several people have been notified as to what what, what happened. Uh, Stephen Moore immediately called a few people while the police were trying to track down the bus. Uh, the people he called was his attorney. And his, I can't remember, Captain, if it was his parents or his in-laws, but the parents were called. And thankfully so, because when the kids arrive, Stephen Moore is out front and he has to tell his children what he has found. He has to tell them that their mother has been murdered. And thankfully, either his parents or Linda Moore's parents were there to take the children and remove them from the Moore home. They oh. never step foot inside the home. Okay, but let me stop you there. <laughs> Another captain question for you. Ding, ding, ding. Do you find it odd that he called his lawyer? Yes, and here's the thing. With this case, what it reminds me a lot of is the actions of a one John Ramsey, let's say, right? Where you have all these actions by somebody that's very close to the victim that's found inside the home uh -huh. and you can look at it from different angles and have a different opinion on the person. So like in John Ramsey's case, we have all of these things that he did and some people, Oh, this is weird. This is not how you're supposed to behave. And then others that say, no, this movement, this action is pretty logical in this situation. And here's why. Now, the police were, it was not lost on them that, oh, one of the first calls you make, if not the first call, was to your attorney. So they grilled him about this, and what they found out was 
that in the end, the attorney that he called was his business attorney slash best friend. Okay. So this is a long time friend, and this is not somebody that you would hire to defend you in a murder investigation. Right. So he's not calling his best friend to get legal advice. He's no. calling his best friend because he's going, well, look, he has to figure out what he's going to do with his children. He's calling to get friend advice, not legal advice. Right. So that's one of those things that on the surface, it looks rather suspicious. And then you do a little digging and then you go, okay, not, not really suspicious at all. Right. What's interesting is we hear a lot of times in the river Valley cases that no suspects were ever named publicly. And that's true. Never named publicly by the police, the media and locals certainly named some suspects. And we hear the same thing for the Linda Moore case as well. No suspects ever named publicly. But what we do have beneath the surface is the lead detective told Stephen Moore, look, buddy, you understand you are our prime suspect here in this case. You're behaving strangely. Your movements, your actions seem odd. You seem disconnected from the situation. You have a check written. Uh, we're asking you questions about your wife and you are giving us emotionless answers. And he says, you got to understand, Stephen, 90% of the time, this is a domestic situation. 90% of these cases, the husband is involved. Yeah. The husband did it. And he also told Stephen Moore something that I found very interesting. Given that Stephen Moore was the one that found his wife, and given the timeline that Stephen Moore is able to provide to detectives, he tells Stephen Moore, look, you're in a strange catch-22 situation because you are the prime suspect, but you also are our best witness. So much more to get to. Join us back here in the garage. Same bat time, same bat channel. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, the first 50 episodes are available through the Apple Podcast app. You can also find the first 50 episodes available in our website store. But Off the Record, the new Off the Record is live now through the podcast app. You can find it on our main feed. You'll see basically on the main feed of the Apple Podcast app, there'll be extra episodes. And to listen to those, you have to subscribe. You can subscribe monthly or you can play, pay a year in advance for a discounted rate. All the Off the Records bonus shows, they're all ad-free. The main show will still have ads on it as we have no control over that. So if you want to support True Crime Garage and get something in return, check out our show off the record exclusively on the Apple Podcasts app. The first episode, John Benet Ramsey, we, we discuss some interesting 
things in the John Bonet Ramsey case, and there's more to come. More episodes we've already recorded. Those come out every other week. So until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't.